It's the 24th of February, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. My apologies to those of you who've been waiting for this podcast. It's coming in a little bit late, about 12 hours too late. Uh, and that's because I'm on the other side of the world doing investigative reporting. So far, I have nothing to report on that investigation. More later, maybe, maybe not. This week in the news, a retrospective study from Taiwan looked at data claims analysis between the association between Hashimoto's thyroiditis and lupus. And guess what? There is one. You know, something like 10% of patients who have thyroiditis actually get lupus. I put this in there because I think there's a lot of rheumatologists who are kind of um, infatuated with this association between thyroid testing and the diagnosis of arthritis. Number one, yeah, lupus patients do get thyroiditis. It's actually one of the more common autoimmune associations. And the reverse is also true. No surprise there. If you're seeing a new patient with arthritis, do you do TFTs? Many rheumatologists too and do. And I got to tell you, I think the uh, yield on that is incredibly low. It's almost like throwing money out the window. If you don't have symptoms of hypothyroid or hyperthyroidism, using that as a cause for someone's aches and pains, very, very unlikely. But, you know, these conventions exist in rheumatology despite the experience of old, white-haired, semi-retired rheumatologists. I don't know who that would be. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, I found this study interesting, and this is a study about whole body cryotherapy. You know, that's where they put you in a box at like minus 70 degrees for two or three minutes. And it's supposed to have healing effects. And the people who I know who use this the most are, in fact, professional athletes who are trying to limit injury that they sustain, uh, especially football and other contact sports. But in this particular study, 32 men with HLA-B27 positive ankylosing spondylitis were, treat, were, were studied, and they looked at, they wanted to look at endogenous cytokine production induced by exercise and how you could abrogate that with the use of whole body cryotherapy. So 16, uh, everybody went underwent an exercise regimen of um, 60 minutes a day for 10 days. They did before and after sampling on cytokines, and half the group had pre-treatment with whole body cryotherapy, and I think it was like two or three minutes. The, interestingly, those who had whole body cryotherapy, WBC, there's a confusion in acronyms, nonetheless had significant decreases in cytokines and other um, uh, measurable proteins that are really indicative of endothelial activity. So high sensitivity CRP, P-selectin, uh, soluble VCAM1, neopterin, all very significantly decreased compared to those who didn't get whole body cryotherapy. Moreover, those at whole body cryotherapy actually at the end of the this whatever this uh, few weeks of study had lower BASDI, BASV, and pain intensity scores and had some improvement in functional measures. Uh, you know, if any of you have listened to me or followed me, you see that or you heard that maybe I'm kind of a broken record re recently about how we manage flares in different diseases? Well, the answer is steroids. I'm looking for a solution to manage flares other than steroids. Could this not be whole body cryotherapy? And 
more importantly, who's going to pay for it? And should this be in every rheumatologist's office? Is this the future of rheumatology? Tune in for more. No, that's not why I'm doing investigative reporting down here in the subtropics. Uh, an overview, two articles about JIA. Um, one about JIA-associated uveitis. is a real nice uh, overview of the subject. Um, 10 to 15% higher in the subsets who are at risk for uveitis with uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis. And of course, that would be, you guessed it, ANA positive, oligoarticular onset. Um, those who have a, a disease onset, very young, under age six, um, those are the ones who get more uveitis. Uh, it's a nice review of the treatment options. The main point of the article was um, really about tocilizumab and IL-6 as a treatment option. First line therapy is going to be topical steroid eye drops. Methotrexate has a role here, uh, as does the TNF inhibitors for which, as you know, adalimumab is approved for non-infectious uveitis, I believe over the age of two. But the other antibody um, antibodies against TNF-alpha, uh, especially infliximab, do work, whereas the receptor does not. Um, rituximab and tocilizumab are other options. A little bit of data on abatacept. In my conversations with the eye mavens who dabble in rheumatology, um, when we're stuck, we seem to be talking more and more about IL-6 inhibitors, uh, tocilizumab and or rituxan as management of difficult cases of uveitis. Uh, so keep that in your hat. Another study on JIA looked at what happened to a population of 613 JIA patients followed for a number of years, more than four years, and looked at the frequency of TMJ disease and orofacial deformities. I don't know if you've ever worked in a JIA clinic as I have, but that's a major concern. Growth disturbances, especially of the jaw, lead to a significant amount of TMJ disease in the pediatric population, uh, and especially those, and it's both those who are, have the diagnosis of either poly or oligo, JIA, but also those who are getting steroids. Uh, and so this is a major concern, especially as they get older and become adults. Some are so severe that there's really dental maxillary um, and mandibular deformities that require future surgery. Anyway, in this cohort followed over time, the cumulative incidence of TMJ disease was 30%. 21% had arthritis-induced dentofacial deformity and dentofacial dysfunction in half. Again, most adults are not really adult rheumatologists, are not aware of these numbers, suggesting that, you know, if you have a, a, a child who's transitioning from pediatric rheumatology care to adult care, you probably need to have involvement of the ENT specialists or the ones that were following them as kids. This is very important. TMJ was predicted by younger onsets, being female, being ANA positive. Sounds a little bit like uveitis, does it not? Another survey uh, in the last week looked at biosimilars and how they're being perceived by practitioners. This survey involved 300 clinicians who are either rheumatologists, dermatologists, or GIs and ophthalmology, I think we're in there too. They're, the bottom line is that many of them said they were, so, they were comfortable, uh, either very or somewhat comfortable with biosimilars and giving them. Um, however, um, the majority said that the economics of biosimilars were not an incentive for them to switch from the originator product to the biosimilar, meaning we in the U.S. are dissatisfied with these 5%, 10% discounts, and why should we do it? 
you know, they're getting much better discounts in, uh, in the EU than we should be having over here. Um, it's no wonder that there's been a very slow uptake of biosimilars largely due to disappointing cost and pricing. And that's going to be a big issue this year as we have uh, one new adalimumab biosimilar that's hit the market in January. And, and then we're going to have seven more come July. A meta-analysis was done looking at the frequency of visits that we um, have in the United States compared to outside the United States. This is 25 studies, um, a bazillion patients, I guess, between 1985 and 2021 showed for an RA patient, the average number of visits for an RA patient by U.S. rheumatologist was 5.2 per year. That's either between every two to three months. Man, really? I find that surprising. I would have guessed between three and four. Outside the U.S., the number is exactly that, 3.3 per year. And then those RA patients, they're sometimes seen by their primary care, the U.S. non-rheumatologists, up to five times a year. So they are seeing other doctors in addition to the rheumatologist. If it's lupus that you're asking about, um, we in the United States see our lupus patients less, 3.2 visits per year. What? But non-rheumatologists, your primary care doctors, are seeing lupus patients 12 times a year. These are claims data. These are uh, large number data. This is, I'm shocked at this, that most lupus patients are seeing their non-rheumatologists than their rheumatologists. That sounds like a gigantic mistake. I think that they should see their non-rheumatologists, but there should be some balance there. Fibromyalgia, 1.8 visits for U.S. rooms versus 0.4 for rooms outside the United States. Overall, visits to rheumatologists increased in this era from 1982 to 2019. Um, but there are some imbalances here in care, are there not? Uh, an electronic health records uh, study from a very large UK clinical practice research data link database looked at gout patients and showed that uh, in this cohort of 318 gout patients followed longitudinally after their hospitalization for gout, that they had an increased risk of VTE, venous thromboembolic events, in the 30 days following their hospitalization. However, after 30 days, 30 to 60, 60 to 90, no increased risk of VTE. What does that tell you? It tells you what you know. Inflammation drives VTE risk. Disease activity drives VTE risk in all of our diseases. And yes, in gout, if you're very inflamed, inflamed enough to get, you know, put in the hospital, you're probably going to have a higher risk of VTE. Again, that happens in the first 30 days following a severe gout attack enough to get you put in the hospital. A new drug from um, Ken Sag and colleagues was studied in 143 gout patients. This is a non-purine xanthine oxidase inhibitor called uh, Tulixostat. Uh, and this was a, a study that looked at its efficacy as far as lowering uric acid levels to below 5. Uh, there were two different doses, three different doses of Tulixostat, 50 milligrams, 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams. Uh, at week 12, only 2% of those on placebo achieve the target. But at 50 milligrams a day, it was 47%. At 100 milligrams, 45%. At 200 milligrams, sounds like the right dose, at 62%. Um, there were certainly more flares in those who were treated with placebo. So this sounds like something that's coming down the line 
as another therapy that might be helpful in our patients with gout. It's time for play that game. What's the differential diagnosis of granulomatous myopathy? And right, sarcoidosis. But there's 19 more answers. So think about it. Other causes of granulomatous myopathy. Patient's weak. CPK is 695. Do a biopsy. It's going to come back with what possibilities? My list from extensive research on something called a computer. I, I did a Google on it and came up with sarcoidosis, inclusion body myositis, myasthenia gravis, Crohn's disease, GPA, TB, brucellosis, syphilis, primary biliary cirrhosis, RA, scleroderma, lymphoma, checkpoint inhibitors, check please, GVHD, and some types of lymphoma, especially in natural killer T-cell lymphomas, um, all, both of those are associated with granulomatous myositis. Uh, a few more reports. A Korean population looked at the frequency of Dacre-Vein's tenosynovitis. We see that, do we not? I've seen a lot of pregnant patients with Dacre-Vein's tenosynovitis, and I always surmise that they are holding their baby like, like a sack of potatoes, meaning that their arm is hanging down, their wrist and their fingers are hyperflexed under the, the hold of the baby's bottom, and the baby's head and body is nestled into their arm and elbow. But the hand being held in fixed position and moving the baby nonetheless, I think is a surefire way to get Dacre vein sinusitis a few weeks after the baby comes home. The overall incidence in their population-based study from 2013 to 2017 was 2% of all pregnant women. Risk factors for Dacre vein sinusitis, having a pregnancy at, after age 30, multiple gestations, C-sections, I think that means the baby was like more than a sack of potatoes, hypertension in pregnancy, interesting, and RA. By the way, diabetes and gestational diabetes was not a risk factor. Saw a really goofy study showing that colchicine doesn't work in osteoarthritis. Imagine that. Not sure why that study was done, but I guess when they looked at this, it was a meta-analysis, 10 studies. I guess in countries where you don't have many treatment options, you use what you got, and colchicine's dirt cheap. At least it is outside the U.S., and unfortunately, it doesn't really work. So let's dispel that rumor here today now. Interesting data on the risk of arthritis comes from a um, large uh, NHANES study. This last NHANES study actually did blood samples, and we're looking specifically for uh, heavy metals in the, in the circulation. And they found that the risk of arthritis, and we're largely talking OA and RA here, was increased with higher levels of lead, cadmium, and copper. Interestingly, they showed that um, lower levels of selenium and mercury were associated with, were protective against developing arthritis, but these were usually associated with alcohol intake. The little I could find on this suggests that maybe if you're drinking alcohol, which we know to be protective against arthritis, it's anti-inflammatory, um, is also associated with increased um, excretion of mercury and probably selenium. Lastly, we had two reports about periodontal disease being um, new insights, I guess, if you will. One was comes from PLS1, uh, the journal, 
which comes from NYU School of Dentistry, where they showed correlations between the periodontal inflammation index that they had and saliva, meaning spit cytokine levels, suggesting that, that the saliva accurately reflected the amount of periodontal inflammation, and that could be used as a surrogate marker in following patients. We know that periodontal inflammation is critical to RA, but it's also critical to atherosclerotic disease and a whole host of other diseases as well. It basically gives rise to more cytokines, which will then have systemic effects to in the host where they may be predisposed to either psoriasis, Crohn's disease, RA, etc. Right? Um, another study, un, not related to this, but along the same lines, uh, comes from Science and Translational Medicine. Um, I thought this was a really important study, one that you should probably read, because it showed um, serial assessments on five patients with, who had periodontal disease and who did not have periodontal disease. And they looked at blood and, um, and saliva, I guess, and they basically showed that patients with periodontal disease have repeated bacteremias that basically trigger uh, ACPA generation and immune events that lead to synovitis. So they make a real connection between um, the transcriptional signatures seen in citrulline-rich cells and also in the bacteria, that all of which contribute to activation of macrophages and monocytes in tissue and in synovium and also in the circulation, and also lead to uh, activation of uh, B cells that make um, CCP. So we know that there is this correlation between periodontal disease and CCP and RA, but now we're connecting the fact that the periodontal disease is sort of the portal or the mucosal break for repeated infections that drive the immune response towards inflammation um, that will take hold in the joint and also have systemic effects and have the biomarker of, of CCP or ACPA. I think it's a really important, if not maybe one of the most important studies I've seen so far this year. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by RoomNow.Live. You can go there and register. This is really going to be, I think, the greatest meeting I think I've ever run. This is our fifth year running it. Um, we have great speakers all doing short presentations, a lot of polling, a lot of quizzing, a lot of Q&A with the audience. You need a voice. We need to have you there. RoomNow.Live. Register now. We'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye.